Ah, well, uh, we're going to be in the book of Mark again this morning, so I want to give you a chance to get there. If you uh, need a Bible, there should be a few on the, the chairs there in front of you. Uh, we're going to the book of Mark, chapter 9. Uh, if you are using one of those Bibles on the chairs in front of you, you're going to page 1143. 1143. Book of Mark, chapter 9, page 1143, if you're using one of those chair Bibles. Uh, as you're turning there, um, one of the things that I struggle with, and I've been honest with you guys about this, is pride. It's something in my life that continues to, uh, to show its face, and I constantly find myself needing to learn lessons of humility. Um, the, one of the more recent times that that uh, came up for me was about two years ago when I was at chaplain school for the military. And uh, toward the end of the, uh, the, the school, which was a, a, a six-week course, uh, there was a, the top award, the leadership award. And uh, I was in the running with this other chaplain. And uh, so what we had to do was they had evaluated us over the course of the, the class and taken some things in consideration. And then the final thing we had to do was we had to go sit before a board, a reviewing board. And, and we had to, to sit. They were evaluating everything. You know, from the moment you walked in, did you walk in with military bearing? Did you keep your military bearing? How did you sit? Did you wait to be seated till they instructed you to sit? Did you sit with your hands on your lap? You know, when you answered the questions, did your hands stay on the lap? Now, if you've ever watched me talk... You know, that was the hardest part for me, keeping my hands on my lap while I talked. Um, but I did that. Um, but they would then ask you questions where, you know, they're trying to gauge how do you think, how do you think on your feet, how, you, how do you go through, um, you know, scenarios. And um, I got cocky. I got cocky. Uh, I thought I had it in the bag, you know, because just opening up the closet door here, here's what was going on in my mind. I'm looking at the other chaplain, this girl, and I'm thinking, grades are better than hers. She sat right next to me, so I knew all this stuff. Grades are better than hers. Clearly, I'm a better leader than she is. Everybody knows I'm a better leader than she is. Everybody's telling me I'm a better leader than she is. I got this in the bag. I can answer. I've been in the hot seat before. I mean, come on. I had to sit with the Houston elder board to to interview here. These guys are nothing. A colonel, a major, a master sergeant? Come on, you know? I'm thinking, I've got this. (laughs) They asked me these questions. Enter humility. Because when they asked me the questions they asked me, all of a sudden I went blank. I couldn't think. I couldn't give them an answer. I, I, I couldn't, you know, uh, simple questions. I found myself talking and I was having one of those outer body experiences where, where I kind of step outside, I'm looking at it and going, oh, I can't believe you just said that. But keep talking, maybe you'll get out of it. No, 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 this is military. If you talk less, you'll do better. I mean, it was just, it was horrific. And uh, needless to say, I didn't come out with that award. And I, it, it was through that experience, I looked back. It was me being broken and humiliated where I realized how much pride I had leading in to that moment. The whole course, it had just been building for me, and I was in need of a lesson in humility. And uh, that, that was certainly one for me. It was embarrassing for me, very embarrassing. As a disciple of Christ, that's something that I'm required to live with is humility. It's something that's supposed to characterize my life. And it's something, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a disciple of Christ, it should characterize your life as well, humility. But so often for us, it does not characterize our lives. And so this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 38 through 50. Uh, Jesus is going to continue to try to teach his closest disciples the very same thing, that humility must characterize the life of his disciples. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to show them what it looks like when your life is not characterized by humility. And he's going to point out to them three things that that characterize a person who lacks humility. And you're going to see that a person who lacks humility, uh, that leads them to elitism. 
elitism. A person who lacks humility, they begin justifying sin. And a person who lacks humility lives a selfish life. So Jesus is going to teach him this. Look with me at, at chapter uh, 9 of Mark. We're going to take this in segments. Chapter 9, we're going to go verse 38 through 41 first. Chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, because no one does a miracle in my name will be able to soon afterwards say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. For I tell you the truth, whoever gives you a cup of water because you bear Christ's name will never lose his reward. So the first thing that, 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 that Jesus is going to try to get across to his disciples is that if you don't lead a life of humility, you will be characterized by elitism. Now, if you, you kind of remember back just before Jesus gets to this point, remember he had already started this lesson with his disciples. Remember because they were traveling and the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And when Jesus gets there and he asks them, what were you arguing about? They didn't want to fess up. They all pleaded the fifth. And, and then Jesus starts to teach them, hey, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the last. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to learn to serve everyone. And he held up a child before them and said, you need to, you need to serve the most ins- insignificant people there are. And that was the example of the child. So his lesson in humility kind of started then. You want to be first, you've got to be last. But it's kind of continued on because, see, John didn't get it. The Apostle John, the one, the one who the Bible says Jesus loved, the one who at the Last Supper is likely the one who was sitting right next to Jesus and just kind of leaned into Jesus. The one who at the cross, Jesus looked down at him and said, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and the first and second and third epistles of John and the book of Revelation, John didn't get it. Because he says in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Somewhere along the way, the the disciples came across this other guy, this guy that was not in their group. They were not traveling around with Jesus, but they came across him, and here he is casting out demons in the name of Jesus and apparently doing it successfully. And so the disciples decided he's not with us. He's not following us. He's not part of our group. So they went up to him and told him, he's got to stop that. Well, I think John brings it up to Jesus looking for some affirmation here, looking for, did I do the right thing here? That's, that's not what he got because Jesus goes on to say, don't stop him because if a person's casting out demons in Jesus' name, doing miracles in Jesus' name, he's not going to turn right back around right after that and say something bad about Jesus. If this guy's being successful at casting out spiritual demons in the name of Jesus because of his faith, he's not going to turn right back around and and, and speak poorly about Jesus. I think this probably had to sting a little bit too. It, back in chapter 8, just the chapter before this, remember Jesus had taken three of them up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and on the way down from the mountain, they came across this crowd arguing with the rest of his disciples. And you remember what they were arguing about? The, the, this dad, this desperate father who had a, a kid who had been tormented by a demon his whole life, had brought his, his child to Jesus. Since Jesus wasn't there, he brought him to Jesus' representatives, the apostles, the disciples, and asked them to cast out this demon, and they couldn't do it. Jesus shows up on the scene, exasperated with them, and casts out the demon. Remember what Jesus said to them later in private? They said, why couldn't we cast them out? And Jesus said, because that kind of only comes out through prayer. In other words, the disciples had gotten cocky. 
They, 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 were, they were so arrogant in their ability to exercise the power that Christ had given them that they assumed it was always going to be available to them and that they could use it whenever they want, however they want, in their own strength nonetheless, without praying and depending upon God. And so here they come, the guys who could not cast out that demon. Their last run at it was a failure, and they come across a guy who's not even in their group who's not even got the benefit of hearing all the things that Jesus is, is teaching, seeing all the things that Jesus is doing, and here he is casting out demons in Jesus' name. You think a little pride swelled up? He's not with us. He can't be doing that. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. And, and look with me uh, back at your text at um, verse 40. And he gives this really broad statement. And Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, the disciples had gotten a very narrow view, a very narrow perspective. If you are a follower of Christ, it means that you've got to look like them. You've got to, you've got to be in their group. You've got to be following around with Jesus, and you've got to do things like they do. And Jesus says, no, you've got to go broader than that. If someone's not, if, if someone's not against us, then they're for us. And so Jesus is calling them to say, that guy, he's for us. He may not be in your group. He may not be in your immediate circle, but he's got genuine faith as well. And he's living out that faith. And he's exercising that faith. And he's doing miracles in that faith in Christ's name. Don't stop him from doing that. We get elitist the longer we stay in Christianity, the longer we grow into our faith, uh, the longer we've been in a church, uh, the, the more secluded we get as a group, the more likely we are to become elitists. If we lack humility, we become elitists. We think this is the only group. Everyone else has to fit this mold. They have to talk like us, worship like us. I mean, they have to sing the same kind of music, the same style like us. Uh, if they don't, there's something suspect about them. Um, when it comes to their beliefs, their doctrine, uh, some of the issues we make a big deal out are not big deals at all. And, but what we do is we then start pushing them away and say, well, you don't line up exactly with me. And so you think about all the different denominations that we have. Every single denomination was started because of a disagreement over something in the Bible, the way it was interpreted or the way that it was practiced. And, and some of those denominations had it right and some of them had it wrong. Some of them still have it wrong. Some of them still have it right. But there's not one denomination that has everything right. There's, there, there's, there's, there's denominations that have truth in them. Maybe they've got some things wrong. Maybe they've got some things right. And you know what? Non-denominations don't even have everything right. Right? But we tend to think that if you don't go to the same church, or go to the same type of church, you can't really be a genuine follower of Christ. Or, I'm not going to take you seriously as a follower of Christ. So you go to that, that other denominational church on the road, well, I know they happen to believe this. Well, here's the thing. There are some things that we, we don't negotiate on. There are some things that are absolutely essential if you're going to be called a Christian. Those things are non-negotiable. If those things aren't in place, one of them being salvation is only through Christ by faith, nothing else, if something like that's not in place, then yeah, you should be questioning, can I, can I be doing anything with them? If, if they believe Jesus is not God, he's just a man, yeah, you should be questioning something there. If they don't trust the Bible as their, their source of authority, but instead they, they trust people or they trust other books, yeah, you should be questioning them. But if they've got differences in the way they baptize, Differences in the way they worship or express worship. Differences in the way they think the gifts operate today. Those things are not essential. They are not essential to being a Christian. Okay, do you hear what I'm saying? They are important, 
but they're not essential. And so when it comes to uh, doing ministry with other believers, if they believe the same thing we believe about salvation and about Christ, we should be able to partner with them. We should be able to bless them in their ministry. Even if we're not partnering with them, we should be able to bless them in their ministry. We should be able to celebrate them when they have victories in their ministry. One of my favorite things, uh, First Baptist Church, Charlie Blunt, great pastor. Many of you guys know that. Uh, He and I, we love getting together. One of the things I love seeing is when they baptize people. And he, 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 he lets us know, they baptized, I don't know, last time it was like 20-something people. Maybe it was more than that by now. They had two Sundays in a row where they just had a slew of baptisms because they had a slew of salvations. That is a victory for all of Christ's followers, the whole kingdom of God. And we should celebrate that. And we should celebrate that with them. We could, we, we're not congratulating people. We're saying, praise God that you are staying the course. Praise God that you are being faithful to walk and to preach the gospel and to minister to people and God has seen fit to allow you to harvest at this time. That's a good thing. They don't do everything like us. There's some things they believe that are different than us. But you know what? When it comes to the essentials, we're on the same page. For us to be seclusionists would be to think that we are the elite. If you don't believe the same things I believe about the end times, I should still be able to fellowship with you. I should still be able to have conversations with you, partner in ministry with you, just because maybe you don't believe in a rapture and I do. Just because you don't believe in a kingdom on earth and I do. I should still be able to do things with you because, again, that's not an essential. It's important, but it's not an essential. And Jesus is saying, look, that guy may not be in our group. He may not be following me around. He may not have left everything like you left everything, but he has genuine faith and he's living out that faith where he's at, in his circles. Don't stop him from doing that because if he's not against us, he's for us. But the disciples had gotten arrogant. And if you lack humility, it leads to elitism. Look with me now at verse 41. Jesus says, For I tell you the truth, whoever gives you a cup of water because you bear Christ's name will never lose his reward. Jesus says, Look, if you're traveling and it's hot, and someone gives you a cup of water in this arid region, because you are a follower of Christ, they've done a good thing, and it will not go unnoticed by God. That's a small thing to do. How much more important is it that we've got a guy over here casting out demons in Christ's name? That's a big deal. So if God's going to notice the very small things, like giving someone a cup of water in Christ's name, then he's certainly going to notice the big things, and it shouldn't be a big deal to these guys broaden our perspective. Greater kingdom perspective is what we need. Uh, Not us for and no more type of mentality, right? We need to be able to celebrate. We need to be able to partner with. We need to be able to bless people in their ministries, even if it's not something we're comfortable with or we're not called to do. We need to be able to do that. And the way that we get to that point is humility. Humility. He goes on in verses uh, 42 through 48. The way you know that you lack humility is not just that you develop an elitist attitude or a mentality, but also you start to justify sin. Okay, so verse 42 through 48, look with me now. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it is better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life lame 
than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And I'm sorry, I went a little further there. 42 through 48. Some of the toughest passages in, in, in Jesus' words. Th- these are some of those verses where uh, you get to him and, and you go, what is he saying? Because if he says what he clearly looks like he's saying, he can't mean that, right? And, and, and then you kind of wrestle with it because then friends of yours or people you know who don't go to church, who don't read the Bible, when they come to a passage like this, they say, see, this is exactly why I can't follow your Jesus. He tells people to cut off their hands, gouge out their eyes, cut off their foot. And then what's all this talk about hell? Right? That makes these verses very difficult. And before we jump into them, I want to say this to us. There will be times as we follow Christ that he will call us to do things that are difficult, that we are uncomfortable doing. There will be things that we don't understand, that we don't get, that we might question. But if we are following Christ, if we are going to call ourselves a disciple of Christ, it means we've still got to trust him, take him at his word, and, and try to, to understand it. And, and I think with these verses, there are reasonable explanations to help us get around what oftentimes is complicated. So, so look with me. First thing he says, verse 42. The first thing he's going to do with verse 42 is he's going to say, uh, you can't cause other people to sin. Be careful of that. And so he's just talking about this guy that was casting out demons, right? And he says, don't, don't stop him. Picking up on that is where verse 42 says, if you cause any little one like him to sin, to to, uh, stumble or to sin, it would be better for you to have a huge millstone tied around your neck. So Jesus is saying, you don't cause others to sin. Don't discourage them from living a life of faith. Don't discourage them from living out their faith. See, for the disciples to go to that guy and say, stop doing that. Stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. When this guy's got genuine faith that he's living out and he's exercising, they're discouraging that guy from living out a life of faith. Jesus says, you do that kind of thing, it's better for you to suffer death by traumatic drowning. And that's what he describes. He says, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown in the sea. This millstone would have been a large, giant, circular stone on top of another stone, and it, and it, would, it, would, it would turn around and grind the, the mills, uh, the, the grain. But it was so heavy that it required oxen to pull it, to turn it. You couldn't just push that unless you were Samson, I guess. But you couldn't just push that and turn it. Now, his, his disciples would have been familiar with this. You know, um, Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. New Testament starts with Matthew. In between that, there's 400 years, right? We call that the intertestamental period or, or the 400 years of silence. Uh, but it wasn't really silent. We, we call it silence because God didn't have any prophets or, or, or speakers for his, for his name. But it wasn't silent. There was res, um, um, revolutions. I almost said resurrections. That, that was later. Uh, there was revolutions. There was insurrections. People were raising up, calling themselves Messiah, even though they were the false Messiah. And they were trying to overthrow the Roman government. Uh, one, of these, one of these guys went by the last name of Maccabees. And so if you're familiar with the Catholic Bible, uh, those books that your Protestant Bible doesn't have, uh, two of them are First and Second Maccabees, named after uh, these guys. It was a revolution they had started. They were trying to overthrow the government. Uh, they, they didn't succeed, uh, ultimately. But what the Roman government did to the leaders of these revolutions, the way they made an example out of them, 
they took millstones, tied it around their neck, and tossed them into the sea. It's traumatic death. Make, makes a point, though. And so Jesus says, if you cause someone else to sin, if you discourage someone else from living out their life of faith in Christ, you'd be better off dying a traumatic death by drowning. It's that serious. He goes on now, verses 43 through 48, and these are those verses that kind of get weird because he, he names three different body parts. And he says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And his point is, hey, it'd be better for you to go into, uh, to, to enter eternal life, to go into the kingdom of God without it, rather than to keep it, continue sinning, and go to hell. So what do we do with that? Uh, first off, the question is, is Jesus really serious? I mean, if, if our hand causes us to sin, let's say I'm a wife beater. Should I cut my hand off? Well, let's say I'm looking at things I shouldn't look at. Should I gouge my eye out? What if, what if my feet carry me into places that I shouldn't go? Do I, do I really cut my foot off? There are some Christians throughout history who actually believed that Jesus meant literally to amputate. Uh, one of those guys, uh, we call him a church father because he was one of the church leaders kind of in the early second century right after the, um, right after the, uh, the apostles kind of died out. His name was Origen. Um, Origen continued to struggle with lust and sexual immorality as a Christian. And, and there was a common understanding about Jesus' words here, particularly when he said, if your hand causes you to sin. Remember, they didn't have pornographic magazines or websites back then. Now we would associate probably the eyes more with sexual immorality. But the hand uh, was more what they considered to be associated with sexual immorality. And so he continued to struggle with lust. And so he came across Jesus' words here, and it says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter life without it, with one hand, rather than to go into hell with two. Now, he didn't actually go and cut his hand off. He actually took application from that point, uh, drew the, the applying principles, uh, figured out what body part was causing him to actually sin with his lust, and then he cut that off. And he became a eunuch for Christ. If you don't know what eunuch is, look it up in Webster's Dictionary, and you'll get the full force of how committed Origen was. He took it seriously. He took it seriously. But I don't think Jesus meant to take it literally. It's important. And just because we don't take it literally doesn't mean it's not important or it's not serious. I don't think Jesus' point was to take it literally. I think he was using uh, exaggerated language and, and what we would call a metaphor. Uh, he was using certain body parts to represent other things. He was exaggerating to make a point because he's trying to communicate the seriousness of sin and the, the war that we as disciples of Christ must wage on sin in our lives. And so he takes these, these sample body parts, the, the hand and the foot and the eyes, but they're supposed to represent the things that are most significant in our lives and indispensable. I mean, you think about the hand. If you were without one hand, the limitations that that could put on you. Because again, remember, this was in a day where you don't have the kind of prosthetics that we have today. You, you lose a foot. You don't have the kind of prosthetics that we have today. You can't go on and live a relatively normal life. You gouge out your eye. You can't, you can't get any kind of you know, glass eyeball to, to make that look better. You can't get anything to help you see. You were without. You were then crippled. You were then disabled. Those were significant and indispensable things. And Jesus, I think, is trying to make the point, if there's anything in your life even if it's significant and it's indispensable, if it is causing you to sin, 
you would be better off without it. Cut it off. Cut it out of your life. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossians, would tell them to wage war on sin. He'd tell them first in chapter 3, look and set your mind on things above. You know, get your, get your mind right. Get your mind focused on Christ. Think about the things that are good, he would say in Philippians, and pure and holy and right. But then he comes right back around in Colossians 3, verse 5, and he says, and then put to death the things that are sinful. He's calling us as disciples of Christ, as believers in Christ, to wage war on those things that are sinful. Not just sit back and justify it. Not just sit back and say, well, I'm, I'm covered by the grace of Christ. Yeah, I mean, I, I know this is probably not right. I know this area of my life's not surrendered to Christ, but I'm covered by him. He, he, after all, he forgave all sins, past, present, and future. He knew I was gonna do this, and he died for me anyway. Christ calls us to wage war on the things that cause us to sin, no matter how significant they are to us, no matter how indispensable we might think they are, he says to us, it would be better for you to go without those things in your life rather than to keep them, continue to indulge in that sin, continue to enjoy that sin on a road paved to hell. So let's talk about hell because Jesus brings it up a lot. Uh, a lot at the end of every one of these verses where he says, hey, if your hand uh, causes you to sin. So look, look back with me at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two hands and go into hell where the unquenchable fire. Uh, 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than have two feet and be thrown into hell. Okay, if your eye, verse 47, causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And then verse 48, he gives us a description of that hell where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Hell is a serious place. Hell is a real place. Hell is not simply just the absence of God. You know, some people like to soften hell. Well, hell is just, you know, being without God. You know, so, so believe, uh, people who don't believe in Christ today, they're actually living in hell now. No, no, they're not. No, it gets worse. Jesus is very vivid here. The, the word he uses for hell is important here. He uses the Greek word Gehenna, and that's actually a town. Gehenna is actually a town. So as soon as he said, it's better for you to, 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 to have one foot rather than to be thrown into Gehenna, the disciples are going, Gehenna? Because now they're thinking about a town that sat west of Jerusalem. If you go to the Old Testament and you read about Gehenna, at first, it was a place where people who worshipped other gods, they would go to this valley. The Old Testament would call it the Valley of Hinnom. The, the New Testament calls it Gehenna. It's just the difference between Hebrew and Greek. And they would go and they worshipped other gods by offering human sacrifices in that valley. That's detestable. God condemned that. God does not endorse human sacrifices. Right? He condemned that in the Old Testament. One of the things he, he said should set his people apart is that they should not do that. However, his people got led astray oftentimes in the Old Testament. And so uh, not only was it people worshiping other gods from other nations, but the Jews got led into that at some point, And they were bringing uh, human sacrifices to this valley. Until one of Israel's good kings arose, King Josiah. King Josiah. And what King Josiah did is he put an end to that. No more human sacrifices in the valley of Hinnom and Gehenna. Instead, he made it into a trash dump. And what, what happened with this trash dump, the way that you would, you would destroy the trash is you would burn it. 
and there was a constant fire burning up all the rubbish brought to this valley, to Gehenna. And so uh, this picture that Jesus is saying, it's better for you to go into life or to enter the kingdom of God with one hand or one foot or one eye than it is to be thrown into Gehenna. He's given them an extremely vivid picture of a place where rubbish is brought and burned and destroyed. It's constantly on fire there because of all the rubbish that was being brought. The difference between Gehenna and the hell that Jesus talks about is verse 48. Verse 48 where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. See, it's possible that Gehenna, maybe there's a pause in bringing the trash and so the fire stops burning because all the trash is burned. Uh, But uh, also in Gehenna, the worm that he's talking about is likely maggots, right? I mean, you think about trash, you think about rubbish, what do you see? You see dead carcasses, you see maggots, right? Worms. Now in Gehenna, in the real Gehenna, they would burn up. But Jesus is now going further and he says, not only are you supposed to be picturing hell as a place of torment and a place that that is uh, destructive, but you're now also supposed to uh, know that the fire never goes out there. It constantly burns. It eternally burns. And the worms that destroy things, those worms never die because the fire just constantly burns and it's an eternal punishment, eternal destruction. Things don't die when they go to hell. They remain in torment eternally. So you don't just go to hell, get burned up, and then it's over. I mean, if that's the case, we can endure that, right? Burn up, then it's done. No, hell is eternal torment. The worms don't die. You stay alive, but you constantly burn. Verse 48 is actually a quote from the Old Testament as well, which helps us get an even better picture of what Jesus means when he's talking about hell. In Isaiah chapter 66, Uh, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. Uh, And and it says this, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, they will go out and observe the corpses of those who rebelled against me. This is God speaking. For the maggots that eat them will not die, and the fire that consumes them will not die out. All people will find the sight abhorrent. Now what's going on there in Isaiah is the previous two chapters, God has been uh, spelling out for his people his promises of salvation and deliverance, and his, his, uh, his plan to fulfill his promises. He's offering that and laying that before them. And when God offers that and lays that before his people, it often comes with a repent, turn back to me, because you will find me faithful, you will find me good. And so after laying that out for two chapters, verse six, uh, chapter 66, verse 24, is talking about those who remain in a state of rebellion against God, who refuse to accept his salvation, who refuse to accept his promises. And it's for them, those who remain in a state of rebellion against God, that they will, corpses of those that rebelled against them will find the maggots that eat them will not die. Uh, the fire that consumes them will not die out. All people will find that sight abhorrent. And so when Jesus tacks that on to the end of his description of hell, his disciples have a perfectly clear picture. Not only is hell horrible because it's a place of eternal torment, it's reserved for those who rebel against God. And did you catch, catch this? To not accept God's offer of salvation is rebellion against God. You see, uh, if you don't accept Christ's gift of salvation, if you don't accept God's offer through Christ, the, the one who God says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. 
If you don't accept that, if you don't believe Christ, you remain in a state of rebellion. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, if you remain in that state of rebellion, you're still under God's wrath. Hell is reserved for those who rebel against God. And so what Jesus is doing, he's not telling his disciples, hey, if you trust in me, but then you continue to sin, you're going to go to hell because you've lost your salvation. He's not saying that because there's plenty of other places in the scriptures where we can see your salvation is a gift of God. It's given to you. It's based solely on what Christ does. And because it's based solely on what Christ does, there ain't nothing that can change that. There's nothing, Paul says in Romans 8, that can separate you. But what Jesus is doing is he's making a very vivid point by using exaggerated language. You have to wage war on sin in your life if you're a disciple of Christ. You cannot go on justifying it. And so you've got to be willing to cut out the things out of your life that are causing you to sin, even if they're uh, um, indispensable and they're significant. You would be better off, he says. You'd be much better off to enter life having sacrificed in this life than what everyone who is not following Christ is going to experience. Uh, Incidentally, uh, we shy away from hell because it's often abused, right? Um, To be clear, when sharing the gospel with someone, we should talk about hell if we have the time to be able to get into a more extended discussion. We should. We need to. It's important. Jesus talked about hell quite a bit. Hell and money are two of his favorite topics, right? So we've got to be willing to talk about the things Jesus talked about. Now, what many of us shy away from is because we've seen or experienced that abuse where it's just beaten on you, the the hellfire and brimstone, right? And what happens is people are then scared into salvation. Now, fear is a perfectly acceptable motivator to be saved if that fear is a healthy fear of hell. Hell is a horrible place. We, We should be aware the alternative of not trusting Christ is hell, and it's real. You know, it, it's not that you just go to this holding tank and that after, you know, a while, then maybe you'll get moved up. No, no, Jesus says, you go to Gehenna, you go to hell, the eternal torment. It's not that love wins in the end and God, God, when he finally gets to the last day, he says, oh, you guys, I can't just bring myself to send you down there. Go ahead and come in, you know, Christ cover you. No, no. See, he did what he needed to do. And what's left is for us to respond by faith. Accept what God did through Christ. To not is to rebel. And the alternative for going to heaven, entering life as the scripture is calling it here, or the kingdom of God, is your alternative is hell. Fear is a healthy motivator, but we shouldn't abuse it. Friday, we were in the car for a trip up to uh, Wichita. Round trip, quick, back there and forth. Uh, Heard a conversation from my six-year-old to my four-year-old in the back. Uh, kind of funny, actually, in some ways and not in other ways. So um, four-year-old, somehow, uh, sorry, six-year-old asked me, um, will, will I be her dad in heaven? Um, and then, uh, will she see me? And I said, well, you'll see me if you've placed your trust in Christ. Yes. And to which she says, yeah, I've already done that, dad. I've placed my trust in Christ, so I'm going to see you in heaven. Will Kaylin see us in heaven, my four-year-old? Well, she'll see us in heaven if she places her trust in Christ. Six-year-old turns to the four-year-old. You've got to place your trust in Christ, Uh, if you want to see mommy and daddy in heaven. If you don't, you're going to go to hell. And hell is not a good place, and you're going to be very uncomfortable for a long time. (laughs) After that, they led each other into the sinner's prayer, and Kaylin exclaimed, I have believed, and, you know, I doubt she did. And, um, you know, um, 
Of course she's going to respond that way after your sister says, you want to see mommy and daddy or burn in hell, you know? Um, Take that, and unfortunately that's what we have too often been guilty of. You're going to burn in hell. You want to burn in hell, you just fear people in and scare them into heaven. It's not supposed to work like that, right? Because what happens is most people respond out of fear, but they don't really know what they've trusted. They've never even believed. They just know, I don't want to go there. So what, what I want you to hear me say is hell's important. We've got to talk about it. Jesus talked about it. If you have an, a chance to explain the gospel and you've got an extended explanation, take the time, yeah, this is the alternative. Jesus never shied away from it. But God's grace is so good that even though every single one of us should go there because we all are under God's wrath as sinners, God didn't want us to stay there. Instead, what he did is he sent Christ to die for us and do what we could not do so that while we trust in him, we get the righteousness that Christ has. We don't earn our righteousness. We get his righteousness. And if we have his righteousness because we've placed our faith in him, his death, his resurrection, now we have life. Now we are a disciple of Christ. We're a follower of Christ. We're a believer. We're saved, born again, all that language. And if you are, you're called to wage war on sin. If you don't, you're likely lacking humility because it's a lack of humility that seeks to justify sin. Uh, The last thing, 49 and 50, is a lack of humility leads us to selfish living. And he uses this imagery of of salt and fire. So he kind of takes the fire imagery that he had about Gehenna, he kind of pulls it into verse 49 now. And he says in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire, which is an absolutely weird saying, right? What, What does it mean to be salted with fire? I understand being salted with salt. I understand being burned with fire. But how are you salted with fire? It's based in the Old Testament In Leviticus chapter 2, that's one of your your early Old Testament books where it describes what you're supposed to be doing in your sacrifices. And one of the things that you find is salt was one of the things that was required as you brought your sacrifices. So you're bringing a goat or a ram, you bring the salt too. And then we find out in Ezekiel that salt is actually a sign of God's covenant. Whoever knew that, right? I mean, that's one of those things that you you don't even know unless you're told or you, you stumble upon it. And we understand circumcision, baptism, those are signs of God's covenant. Salt. Ezekiel says salt is a sign of God's covenant. And I think what Jesus is doing is here is he's picturing the Old Testament sacrifice that was then brought to the altar and consumed by the fire. It was salted and then consumed by the fire. And I think what he's doing here is he's calling his disciples to live a sacrificial life, a life that is an offering to Christ, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, to, to live your lives as living sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to God. And so he's calling his disciples to live lives that are sacrificial and, and, and lives that are offering offerings to God. And the, the fire purifies. Salt preserves, fire purifies. And so writing to a church in Rome who's likely experiencing uh, persecution at the hands of Emperor Nero, Mark is including this in here to say, you will, you will suffer. You will sacrifice in this life. But see that as God's purification. Continue to live lives that are sacrifices to God rather than remaining focused on yourself. But it takes humility to do that. And so Jesus is trying to, uh, to get that across. And in verse 50, he then instructs them to, hey, don't lose your saltiness and be at peace with one another. In other words, we're supposed to, uh, to, to remain salty. We're supposed to remain uh, you know, focused and, and honoring Christ in the way we live. And it has the potential to be able to preserve uh, society and corruption around us by the way we live. 
And if we do that, if we keep our saltiness about us, then we'll be at peace with one another. So that takes it full circle back to where John says, hey, Jesus, I stopped this guy over there who was casting out demons in your name. Hey, John, if you were salty, you would have been at peace with that guy. Right? The disciple of Christ, his life or her life, it's got to be marked with humility. So how do you know if it's not? Jesus would tell us in, in this passage today, if you've got an elitist attitude, you're, you're, you're exclusive, you seclude others out, if you justify sin, and if you live a selfish life, you're probably struggling with humility. And the gospel answers all of that. The gospel answers our struggle with elitism because all sinners require grace. The same death that Christ died, he died for all sinners. And the only way to salvation is through Christ. And every sinner who is to be saved must believe. Nobody earns anything. It should break down the walls of elitism. Right? Uh, justifying sin. We have been bought with a price. We're not our own. Christ died for us so that he could set us free from enslavement to sin so that we can instead live for him, not justify sin. And then selfishness. Christ came to give his life for others. And he caused those who follow him to give their lives for others as well. The gospel answers all of that. If we are, if we are reminding ourselves of the gospel and we are continually applying it to our lives, not leaving it back 20, 30 years ago when I first believed in it, but continually asking, how does that shape, how does that change the way I live? That's where humility is born. That's how we remain humble. So Father, we, uh, we so easily get pulled in to um, pride. We too easily start to think things are about us. Um, that we are important, that we are a gift to uh, humanity, to you. And really, God, you are the one who has given us the gift. You are the one uh, who has reached out and saved us, who has offered a way for us and our brokenness to be restored and to be fixed and to be reunited and reconciled with you. Uh, So forgive us, God, when we uh, let our humility leave us and we start thinking that uh, we've got it all figured out here that uh, anyone who looks different or walks with different groups, they're not, they're not with us, they're not right. God, uh, broaden our focus. Uh, give us grace to be able to extend and humility to be able to celebrate the victories of other churches, other believers, and to bless them as they live out lives of faith. And God, let your spirit convict us when we justify our sin. And God, if you need to break us in those moments or expose us in your mercy, do it out of your great love for us. And then, God, I pray that you will continue to break us of our need for selfish living and instead remind us of how you freely gave so that we can live lives of offering to you. So help us, God, because that's hard to do, and it takes your spirit inside of us changing us. So we pray that you do that in Christ's name. Amen. And with that, let me, uh, let me dismiss us. When Christ came... He humbled himself. The book of Philippians said he didn't see equality with God as something he had to hold on to. Instead, he willingly took on the form of his own creation so that he could come and save those he created. So go and learn humility from your Savior and then go and live out lives of faith and do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
We'll see you guys next week.